Amen. Hello, everybody. Man, that was so good. That was so encouraging. How's everybody doing tonight? Feeling good? So this is the part of the semester where you start to feel a little bit stressed out, huh? Tests start coming up and start to feel like there's more to do than you can handle, right? I felt that too, honestly, as I've, um, as I've adjusted to my new role here. My name is Roman Wally. I'm going to stop introducing myself probably after this week. That's probably enough, right? Uh, but I'm relatively new here. And adjusting to the different demands of the position um, has been a weight to get used to. Um, but one of the things that I've loved about going through the book of Mark with you guys is I feel like I'm meeting Jesus again all over and afresh. Not in the sense that I didn't believe the gospel before, but in the sense that I'm seeing his character anew. I'm seeing his power and his authority in a new way. And it's his authority that we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, the very first night that we got into the book of Mark, we looked at just that first verse. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And with that one verse, Mark summarizes the whole message, the whole story that he's going to be telling. That this is a joyful proclamation. It's a pro joyful proclamation about Jesus, the anointed king. That's what Christ means, the Son of God. And that God, through Jesus, is restoring, renewing, rescuing, and redeeming all things. Human creatures as well as creation itself. And then he's going to unpack that the rest of the book. And so last week we got to see the introduction of Jesus the King. We got to see how this is the fulfillment of what God had always promised centuries and centuries ago. We got to see how Jesus the King is anointed with God's Spirit. He confronts the forces of evil out in the wilderness. And then he comes and he begins his public ministry proclaiming, here's good news. God's reign is coming to earth Turn away from your sins and trust in what God is doing here and now. And so we're going to get into this next passage, Mark 1, 16 through 45, and we're going to see the authority of the king put on display. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that out. Open up to Mark chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, just pull one out of the pew back right in front of you. It should be black. And if you literally don't have one, please take that. That's our gift to you. Uh, but we'll be looking at the authority of the king put on display tonight. And before we dig into the passage, I, I, I feel like we just need to acknowledge that authority is one of those words, one of those concepts that, that comes with a lot of baggage for many of us. Uh, we have seen political, um, political people. <laughs> uh, we've seen dictators. We've read the history books about people who've been up at the top and had authority and they've lorded it over the people below them. They've done that to puff themselves up, and they've done that to benefit themselves while the people underneath them suffer. And that just, I don't know about you, but that, that is despicable. That enrages me a little bit. And then some of us have experienced personally authority being abused. And so somebody who has been an authority figure in your life, perhaps, a parent or a teacher, family member has done something to you because they had authority over you and it's hurt it's cut deeply and so whenever we think about authority there's some baggage there we feel like those who are in authority are going to take advantage of us they don't care about us 
and that really I just need to be independent and walk my own path, do my own thing, take care of myself, because that way I know I can be safe. Submitting to authority, not so much. Not my thing. And I think the thing that we're going to see tonight in five different little stories about Jesus is that Jesus exerts and exudes an authority of an altogether different kind. That Jesus is the good king that God has chosen. And the way that he exudes authority, the way that he exerts it, brings life, it restores, it draws people into the love and the favor and the redemption of God. And so let's go ahead and jump in. Mark 1, 16 through 45. And we're going to take it chunk by chunk. And so we're going to read a little bit, and then I'm going to kind of stop and narrate and explain a little bit. But we're just making our way through the passage. And then I want to talk about how do we need to submit to Jesus' authority? How do we need to come under his good authority? So let's start in Mark 16, 1 through 20. Or I'm sorry, 1, 16 through 20. We're going to see the authoritative call of the king. Passing along the side, the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So here we see the king walking along, and he is the one who chooses who will follow him. He's the one who takes the initiative, and he says, you, come, follow me. But he doesn't just say, follow me. He actually has something that he's going to do with them. Take a look again at verse 17. He says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men, of people. So Jesus the king is not interested in just gathering a, follower, a following of people who are just watching him, observing him, and that's it. He's not interested in just getting passive, uh, passive observers. He's interested in calling people who will do the work that he's doing. As he goes around and he proclaims that God's reign is coming to earth, you don't have to remain in sin and in suffering anymore. Trust in God. He's calling other men to be a part of what he's doing. One, to receive it for themselves, and then two, to do the work that he's doing. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And you see that this is a quick response that, the, that these men have. They're, they become disciples. They're called disciples later. Here, they're just four guys. In 18, it says, immediately, that's one of Mark's favorite words, immediately they left their nets and followed him. There's no hesitation, which is a big deal because they're leaving financial security. They have jobs, and to choose to follow this man means that they're leaving behind their jobs. They're trusting him for provision. I don't know how that's going to work, they might think, but I do want to follow this guy. They're leaving behind family. Take a look at verse 20. This is James and John. They're in the boat with their father Zebedee, and whenever Jesus calls them immediately, they leave their nets, they leave their father Zebedee, and the hired servants who are with him. As they're leaving behind financial security, 
They're leaving behind the family business, family connections, and they're choosing to follow this man whom they've heard about, they've heard rumors of, who exudes an authority that they respond immediately to. This is the authoritative call of the king. And the king's not just interested in having passive observers. The king is calling out people who are going to partake in the work that he's doing. That's the authoritative call of the king. Now let's go ahead and move on to 1, 21 through 28. Here we're going to see the authority of the king put on display through his teaching and through his rebuking of demons. Verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, Jesus with the guys he just gathered, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished. They were shocked. They were almost overwhelmed at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So Jesus goes with these four guys. He answers the synagogue. He goes up to the front. The book of Moses, the Bible in his day, is before him. And he begins to teach. And very quickly, people begin to realize that this is a teaching unlike any they've ever heard before. Because Jesus just looks at the book, and he looks at them, and he proclaims the word of God. And he's not referencing rabbis who come before him. You see, this is how scribes often taught the Bible, is they would open the scriptures. They would say, hey, we're going to be looking at this passage. And then what they would say is, rabbi so-and-so said this. And then rabbi so-and-so also agreed with him. And then rabbi so-and-so said the same thing very recently. And so therefore, I'm telling to you, this is what this means. You see, the scribes had their authority based on the teachers that they had read about, based on their own learning, and they have to reference humans. And Jesus doesn't do that at all. Jesus reads the word of God and proclaims it to the people. And people not only see that this is a different way of teaching, they sense something different about this guy. And so I imagine as he's teaching... This has to be kind of a weird, awkward, intense moment. What do you do whenever you've been used to teaching a certain way your whole life? You've been used to hearing all the different names of rabbis. I like that rabbi. I like that rabbi. And then this guy gets up, and he's doing something totally different. There has to be some sort of tension in the room. I imagine it's pretty quiet. All eyes are fixed on Jesus at the front, and then those other people are looking around saying, what do we do with this? Who is this guy? And it's quiet. And then the quiet is broken by this really awkward moment. 23. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out. He screamed, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. And so the tension is broken by this really awkward moment. This man gets up and literally points at Jesus and screams at him. And he says, basically, who do you think you are and what do you think you're doing here? In essence, he's saying, this is our territory. And ironically, it's in a synagogue, the place where Jews gather together to read the scriptures and, and worship. He says, this is our territory. What do you have to do here? And who do you think you are? And so this is an confrontation and on top of that this man who's possessed by a demon is called an unclean spirit there are synonyms in this in the bible on top of that he has specific phrases about jesus that he uses he says jesus of nazareth 
But then he also tries to reveal this veiled identity. He calls Jesus the Holy One of God. Basically, God's right-hand man. He says, I know who you are. You're Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. That's a little bit weird um, for us because names often don't mean very much. I was just talking about this with family this weekend. Names just don't mean very much to us unless they sound cool. Um, But in the ancient world, names sort of encapsulated the essence of a person. Uh, they, They expressed who a person is and what they were like. And for demons and for magicians, um, the idea was that if you knew the name of a person or a spiritual entity, if you knew their secret identity, what you could do is you could actually speak that and exert authority over that person or over that spiritual being. It sounds really weird, but this was very, very common. And so what this demon-possessed man is doing, he's standing up, he's screaming at Jesus, he's pointing at him, he's saying, why do you think you're here? Who do you think you are? And he's trying to exert authority over him and saying, I got you. You're the Holy One of God. And then how does Jesus respond? Is he flustered? Is he worried? Take a look with me. Verse 25. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent. Shut your mouth and come out of him. The the king is not disturbed by this. The king is not thrown off by an opposing authority that points the finger at him that says you don't have anything to do here and I actually can control you he says shut your mouth and get out of him and then let's see what happens verse 26 and the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice screaming came out of him and they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves. They disputed among themselves. They were all astir in the synagogue saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So the people see this all play out. That awkward scene has just broken the silence. And then they all come together and they say, what did we just see? And they're debating and they're disputing with each other. You see, this is completely unlike any exorcism they had seen before. Typically, exorcists were, they they went around in the first century. There was Jewish teachers who knew that people were demonically possessed. And then they would use these really fancy, complicated incantations. These long sayings that they would try to then gain control over the demon and expel it. And sometimes this was a struggle for a very long time. And so an exorcism was sort of like, think of the exorcist, right? The Catholic priest comes into the room and it's like a whole evening affair and there's like spewing puke and that sort of thing. It's not that vivid in the text, but this is the same sort of thing. It's a drawn out, dramatic, complex deal. And there's none of that with Jesus. He looks at the guy, he sees through his eyes and he sees the demon and says, shut your mouth, and get out of them. And it happens. And the people are astounded. Not only does this guy teach with authority, but he exerts authority over the demonic. Who is this man who's in our midst? This is Jesus the King. And he exerts and exudes authority in his teaching and in his rebuking of demons. And then we're going to see that continue to happen in the passages we keep on going. 
Take a look at verses 29 through 34 with me. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, after the Sabbath was over and people could carry their, their friends and family members, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So here we see Jesus the king exercising his authority in a compassionate way. Many of us can think of leaders that we've seen who, like I was saying, lower their authority over others. They don't have time to deal with the small people. And in fact, the small people exist to serve them. And it's flip-flopped with Jesus the King. He's there, and the broken, and the hurting, and the oppressed come to him, and he serves them. The broken, the hurting, the oppressed come to him, and he heals them. He frees them. He makes them whole. What I want you to see, whenever we talk about physical healing and demonic oppression, I want you to think of the problems of this broken world. So if you were here this morning, we got to hear again just a reminder how in the early chapters of Genesis, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. It's called sin. And by their sin, corruption, death, sorrow, suffering, all these things came into the world. And this is now the world as we know it. And so we walk around and we expect physical sickness. Now as Americans, we don't walk around and expect demonic forces, but they're there. And they exert a real authority over human life for the purpose of destroying it. You see, the demons target humans. This might be weird to you, but demons target humans, I think, because humans are set on this earth to represent God himself. And so demons trying to strike at God strike it as image bearers. And they want to make them miserable, and they want to destroy them, and thereby give God the finger. And so whenever Jesus comes in and he heals and he casts out demons, he's restoring what was broken by sin. He is banishing corruption. He's giving us little peaks in what the reign of God on earth is like, the renewal, the restoration of all things. And so Jesus, the king, it's not like he doesn't have time for the little people. It's not like it's a burden to him to reach out to those who are in need. But he serves the lowly. He's a compassionate king. Let's go ahead and keep on going. 35 through 39, we're going to see that though Jesus is authoritative, though he is the king, though he does have many pressing needs all around him, he pulls away to be dependent on the Father, and he maintains his focus on the role the Father has given him. 35 through 39. And rising very early in the morning, which must have been difficult. He had a busy night last night. While it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So here we get this little glimpse into a private moment where the king pulls away, he slows down, and he calls out to his father. And he says, Lord, my father, I love you, and I need you. 
something like that. This is the dependence of the son on his father. He doesn't trust in himself alone. He has a relationship with the father and he does the will of the father. And he discerns that through prayer, just like we're called to do. So he's dependent on his father. In 36, and Simon and those who were with him searched for him. They pursued him. They were looking all over for him. And they finally found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let's go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And so you can imagine the scene, Peter and the other three guys, Simon, Peter, and the other three guys who Jesus called, they wake up in the morning, and again, there's a huge crowd at the door. And they say, where's Jesus? They're like, um, let's go find him. And so they go looking around, and there is a whole ton of people who need still to be healed and to be freed of demonic oppression. And they finally find Jesus and they say, come on, you got more work to do. Let's go. And Jesus says, I know I'm here. I know the role that the Father has given me. And right now I'm called to preach about God's reign on earth. And so let's go on to the next sounds. And so that's what he does. He maintains a cool head and he maintains a focus on his purpose. But I want you to see that as he goes, he's preaching in their synagogues in the different towns, and he's casting out demons. These two things are connected for the same reason that I was telling you. Sin, corruption, spiritual evil is in the world as it is, and the reign of God coming to earth means that that is being broken and cast off. And so where the gospel of the kingdom of God, the good news of God's reign on earth is proclaimed, demonic forces no longer have any power. And they are cast off. And so this is the ministry of Jesus, preaching about the kingdom, the reign of God on earth, and casting out demons. And then finally, we're going to see a little story here where the king has authority to even cleanse the uncleansable. Let's read 40 through 45. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, If you will, if you want to, if you so desire, you can make me clean. Real quick, leprosy in the ancient world was a broad spectrum of skin disorders, uh, probably ranging from psoriasis, like a bad case of psoriasis, all the way up to what we know now today as Hansen's disease, which is basically the leprosy that you think of, where the skin is dying. Um, in the ancient world, lepers are viewed not only as sick, but as religiously unclean. That means that they can't enter into the presence of God. And that means that they can't, also, they can't dwell with people because their uncleanness is contagious. It can affect the people around them. And so lepers have to be cast out of society, live in their own towns, their own little groups together, and nobody can touch them. And frankly, nobody even talks to or looks at them. They're the people that everybody's disgusted by. The people that you see and then you avert your eyes and walk the other direction. That's who lepers are. And this man comes up, he sees Jesus, and he breaks some social barriers. He comes up and he kneels down and he says, he speaks to him. If you want to, you can make me clean. And what does Jesus do? 41. Moved in the depths of his guts with pity, he stretched out his hand, touched him, and said, I will. I want to. 
I do desire. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. I, I can't even imagine what it would be like for this leper to receive that. Think about how long it had been since somebody had embraced him. Somebody had touched his face. It might have been even a very long time since somebody had even spoken to him, looked him in the eyes. And Jesus, instead of being afraid that touching him would make him unclean, he breaks all the social barriers, puts his hand on his face, and cleans him, cleanses him. You see, any other man, any other woman who would seek to do what Jesus did would become unclean themselves. And they would have to go through a long process of ritually purifying themselves. And so they would be repulsed by the man in front of them. But Jesus not only is not unclean because of touching this leper, he actually communicates cleansing to this man. This is the authority of the king to cleanse the uncleansable. But Jesus also wants him to be restored back into the community. And so he gives him some instructions. 43. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. So for a leper who was cleansed, they had to go to the temple. They had to demonstrate, look, my skin's good. I'm clean. And the priest has to look them over and say, all right, blessings be upon you. You can come back into the community. And so that's what Jesus is saying. Come back into the community. Go do what you need to do with the priest. And don't make a big ruckus about it because I'm getting a lot of attention already as it goes. But the man doesn't listen. Uh, he must have been overwhelmed with joy, 45. But he went out and began to freely talk about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the town but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. So we see the authority of the king put on display. We see that he issues authoritative calls. We see that he has authority in his teaching and his ability to rebuke demons. We see that he's compassionate towards the broken, the hurting. And we see that he has authority to cleanse the uncleansable. And the wonderful thing is that this is not just a history lesson about what happened in the past. This is not just about some acts that Jesus did in the past. We need to draw out morals for our living today. Jesus, the king, exerts authority now, today. The Bible tells us that he's been raised after being crucified, resurrected, and raised to the right hand of the Father. And there he sits over all rules, all principalities, all powers, the ultimate authority in the universe. And so what does it look like for us to respond to the authority of Jesus, the king, today? I just... Looking from the passage, I, I, three different groups of people came to mind. Some of you have grown up in church, and you're familiar with the Jesus stories. You're relatively familiar with the Bible. Um, and just based on your experience, if you were to try to boil down Christian life, the Christian faith, it might come out to something like this. Attending church and avoiding sins. Attending church and avoiding sins. And what I want to say is that that's not bad, but it's anemic. 
attending church is a good thing. We, we learn things that we need to know here. And I also believe that God is at work mysteriously to mold and to shape us, to make him, us more like Christ. And he does that in a mysterious way. But that's not where it ends. <clears throat> Avoiding sin is a good thing. The Bible commands us to flee sin, to have no part in it, to be wary of temptation. But avoiding sin is only half the game. Jesus calls us into something to actively pursue him. And so just like Simon and Andrew, James and John, Jesus has not issued you a call to be a passive observer. His desire was never that you would simply attend church functions and avoid sin in your life and wait for the day whenever you're going to go to heaven. Jesus has called you personally out so that you would learn from him, that you would be loved by him, and then empowered to do the things that he does. As he goes and he proclaims the reign of God on earth, as he goes and he makes disciples, he's called you to do the same thing. And so, for some of you, the, the point that you're at right now is that you need to learn to just be a disciple. What does it look like to love the Lord? What does it look like to seek his face in prayer and reading the scriptures and serving? How can I be a disciple? For others of you, that's going pretty well. And the Lord's calling you to step into making disciples. To looking around you and saying, who else can I call out? Who else can be a part of this who can then go on and make other disciples? And so practically speaking, the way that we seek to make disciples here in Crosspoint is through community groups. Um, there are wonderful student leaders who are leading these groups who are there for the specific purpose of helping you guys to understand what it means to be a disciple and then how to make disciples. And they're being cared for and equipped by people above them. And so... If that's you, you've been sitting in the pews for a while and just satisfied to attend church and avoid sin, Jesus, the authoritative king, is calling you into something more. He's calling you to be a disciple. And he's calling you to share in making disciples. This is the season to do that. There are others of you, though, who just feel discouraged uh, and bound up with other things that get in the way of even thinking that way. And for you to come under the authority of the king is to receive his compassion at this point. Some of you are dealing with physical illnesses, struggles, issues. That obviously a huge spectrum. I don't even know where to begin with what you could be going through. But you know who, I'm, who you are if this hits home. There's some sort of physical issue that discourages you. That makes you feel like God is far away from you and that your life is just weighed down. And I think what it looks like for you to come under the authority of Jesus the King is to cry out to God for healing in faith. Now, right whenever I say that, I, I want to make a little bit of a disclaimer because God does not always heal. It's not every single time that we cry out to him that we can expect God to heal, but God does command us to pray in faith. 
And based on his actions, based on his character that we see here, we are emboldened to pray with faith. These are not just historical stories of what God has done before through Jesus. Jesus the King can bring healing today. You can't expect that. You can't demand that is what I'm saying. But you can call out in faith. And I believe the Lord wants to do that for some of you tonight. There are others of you who are, it's not a physical issue, but it's a spiritual issue. Um, You may consciously recognize that there are spiritual forces that are discouraging you or drawing you off the path. You may not recognize that. And so I want to share just a little bit of my personal story to help you kind of understand what that even means, okay? Um, So I grew up with a mom who was very sick, um, and when she died when I was about 10, uh, I turned to pornography at a pretty young age to receive some sort of relief, some sort of respite from the pain that I was feeling. And at that point, it was something that did seem to provide some sort of relief and respite, but by the time I was like a sophomore or a junior in high school, I was convinced that this was terrible and I wanted to be done with it. I wanted to be gone in my life. And yet every time I tried, it just stuck with me. And by the time I was in junior year, vile, disgusting thoughts would cross my mind almost like in a harassing sense. There's a difference between me looking at a woman and then choosing to think certain thoughts and then me sitting with my family and having vile thoughts thrown at my mind. And by the end of that junior year, I was convinced there's parts of me that I can't control. And I literally feel enslaved. And I want so desperately to change it, but I can't. It's like I make a vow to God, and then 30 minutes later, I'm doing exactly what I vowed not to do. And it wasn't like I even made that choice. It didn't even feel like I made that choice. This was spiritual oppression. I didn't realize it at the time. But I came to college The gospel was shared to me. I met Jesus through the Bible, and I began to believe him. I began to believe that he could take the disgusting, the vile things of my heart that I had done, that I had thought, and that he could take them away. And I realized one day, it had been like two weeks since I desired to look at pornography or since I'd had a vile thought like that, which was unreal for me. And that that was a huge part of me realizing, okay, there's something real about this. So I don't know what it is for you. Like if it's sexual impurity, or for some of you it is something like despair and self-hatred, self-loathing, and feeling like the only answer for what you're going through is that the world would really probably be better off without you. Whatever it is, There's a part of you that feels like you have lost control of your life, that you are just a leaf being tossed about on the wind, and it leads you to despair and disgust with yourself. And what it looks like for you to come under the authority of Jesus, the king, is to cry out to him and say, Lord, break this from me. You who could rebuke a demon with a word, do that now in my life. Even right now, you might be thinking that that couldn't happen. I couldn't be free of that one thing. I don't want to tell you, you can be. You can be. There are 
many of us who are not used to thinking in these categories, I understand talking about demons is a strange thing. We've grown up in a Western world where we've assumed a naturalistic view of the universe, that there is no spiritual realm, and then now that we become Christians, there's God up at the top, maybe some angels, but those demon things, those are kind of weird, those don't really interact with our lives. And I want to tell you, the Bible's pretty clear. They're there, they do exert authority, they can affect you, but they've been defeated by Jesus, and he has the authority to break them from you so that you might walk in new freedom. And so for some of you, it's, the call is come under the good authority of the king by crying out to him for spiritual relief. And then finally, there's others of you who it's not really a physical thing. It's not really some sort of demonic force. For some of you, when I talk about uncleanness, that hits a chord with you. You might not understand the ancient category of uncleanness because I barely understand it. It's hard <laughs> even to explain it. Um, but let me put it this way. If you, if you feel dirty at like a fundamental level, if you feel like trash and worthless because of something that's been done to you or something that you've done, this is, this is what I'm talking about. This is the sense of uncleanness that I'm trying to get at. And so some of you have had something done to you that has made you feel this way. You've been molested. You've been abused. Maybe you've been raped. And the result of that is you feel like a disgusting piece of trash because you've been treated that way. And you feel like you can't open up about what's been done to you, to others. You feel alone. And you feel like, well, God let this happen, and so he's kind of off doing his own thing, and I can't really have anything from him. This is that feeling of uncleanness, like the leper. You're in your own spot, separated from everybody else, and hopeless. And what I want to tell you is that to come under the authority of Jesus the King for you means that you don't have to be defined by what's been done to you. You do not have to be defined but what has been done to you. No matter how horrific or how tragic or how difficult it was, you can come under the authority of the king, you can confess, share what's been done to you, what you've been walking in, and you can be free from that. You can find your identity as a son, a daughter of God who's beloved and made new and fresh and welcomed into the family of God. You can share that with others around you and you will not be turned away. We've all been wronged in different ways, some of us greater than others. And God restores all. There are others of you, though, who feel that basic level of uncleanness and dirtiness, not because of something that's been done to you, but because of something that you have done to others. And so perhaps you have abused somebody. Perhaps you have molested somebody or raped somebody. Maybe you have sexually manipulated or used other people. Maybe there's a drug addiction or alcohol addiction. I don't know what it is, but there's something that you've done, something that you maybe even regularly engage in, and you feel like, I am a disgusting piece of trash. I can't share this with God. He's holy and far away removed from me. 
And I can't share this with the people around me because they would never understand. They would never accept me. And for you to come under the authority of Jesus the King, the compassionate authority that cleanses, would just be confess your sins. These things do not need to define you. The things, the vile things that you've done do not need to define you and they do not need to remain a part of your life. You can confess those, you can turn away from those, and you can find healing, forgiveness, grace, and a new path under Jesus' authority. You can share that with the people around you and be free from that so it doesn't remain in that dark closet always controlling you. Jesus exerted authority in the past and he sits now at the right hand of the Father. And his authority is expressed in the here and now, especially as we cry out and we pray.